Troy asked me to bring a bio, and I didn't, because what would anybody want to know uh, that you don't already know? But uh, I'd like for you to take just a minute to bow with me as we get started. Almighty Father, we're thankful that we have this occasion to spend together. We're grateful for opportunities to study and worship. We're mindful of how important it is for us to consider your word. Help us as we try to develop the ability to be better students, but not only in learning, but in practice. Forgive us when we fail you. Help us to be cognizant of the times that we disappoint you and help us to be quick to repent of those and seek your forgiveness. Strengthen us for good. Bless us as we try to develop our talents and help us in this congregation to be united in love and concern for one another. We pray all this through Jesus. Amen. Those of you who are members here, and almost everybody is, know that each year we pick out a congregational theme and sort of try to emphasize it at different points through the year. This year is no exception, and the theme is, I am a sheep, and the Lord is my shepherd. And it was decided that the Wednesday night series would carry the same theme. And so each speaker, ten after me, will be presenting lessons on this exact theme, I am a sheep and the Lord is my shepherd. be interesting to see how those different men develop their lessons on this particular theme and I believe that you'll be blessed by coming to hear them uh, speak. Uh, You will hear some men that you regularly have heard in the past, and then there are several men that have not spoken here before uh, that uh, will be a part of the Wednesday night program. My advantage is I'm first. And so nobody can accuse me of simply saying what somebody else said. They may be saying something I said. I'm not sure. I've been thinking about this theme for a good while, and it seems to me that the most important part of it is the second part. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying the first part of the theme is not important. It is important to recognize I am a sheep. There are, there are characteristics of humans that are somewhat sheep-like we follow. And, and, and so I'm not really saying that. And what I'm thinking is what we find in Romans 6.16 You remember in Romans 6.16, Paul says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether 
of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. In a similar way, we're not only sheep, we're slaves. And it's not a matter of are we going to have a master, it's a matter of who is our master. We are all sheep. We're all going to be sheep. The question that's important is, who is my shepherd? Someone, something will shepherd you. We need to get it right. The most prominent passage in my mind in the New Testament, of course, the Old Testament, you would say Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. But in the New Testament, it's John 10. And I'd like for you to have your Bible open at that place, if you will. And in fact, we're going to go back just a little bit before John 10. Remember what precedes John 10. Jesus sees a blind man. And he is a special case, you might say, because he has been blind from birth. My grandfather was blind, but not from birth. But, but this man was born blind. And because of that, the disciples had taken that wrong idea that this terrible thing of blindness could not have been caused unless someone had sinned. So they asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? Jesus said, neither of them, but that the works of God might be manifest in him. As you know, Jesus healed him. Now, there is an interesting point about that, and I know this is not a part of the lesson, but I think it's interesting to note in John 9 and verse 7, he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, and then there's a parenthetical statement, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Everybody would say Jesus miraculously healed this man. He did. But you also see a very important factor there too. Obedience was necessary for him to receive his sight. Had he not gone and washed in the pool of Siloam, he wouldn't have been seeing the rest of his life. Incidentally, another man had to wash to receive a blessing. Who was that? Say it loud. Naaman, right. In the old And Naaman wasn't going to do it, was he? Because he didn't want to get in that dirty Jordan River. But Naaman was not cured of his leprosy unless he obeyed what he had been told to do very important idea. God helps us in numerous ways, but we must cooperate. Now, after the man had been healed, neighbors got involved. They talked to him. There was a conversation. And, and for some strange reason, and I haven't figured this out. Maybe you can figure it out. For some reason, they took him to the Pharisees. It might have been because this was the Sabbath day because the Pharisees latched on that and said that it was unlawful to do what had been done. Then the Pharisees themselves got involved. They questioned the man. They didn't like what he said. <laughs> then they questioned his parents. 
They didn't like what they said. They came back and questioned the man again. And the man got a little bit testy with them. And this is not quoting, but this is the essence, of course, in John 9. He said, I told you. Do you want me to tell you again? Do you want to become his disciples? <laughs> and the result of that was they kicked him out of the synagogue. Kicked him out. Jesus found him, taught him something really more important than getting his sight. He needed spiritual sight. Later, as you know, before the chapter ends, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they are smarting, I guess you would say. And they say to Jesus, are we blind also? Remember in verse 41, Jesus says, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. They were not physically blind, but they were spiritually blind. And Jesus then immediately launches into this talk about shepherd and sheep. In the early part of John 10, Jesus teaches by an allegory. And incidentally, verse 6 calls that an illustration in the New King James Version. Uh, ESV and NIV, I believe, use by example, taught by example, or something like that. Uh, the, the word is a word that sometimes could have been translated parable, but it's not the same word as the real word for parable. So it's normally called an allegory. It's an allegory, an illustration. But in the early part, Jesus tries to show the difference by this allegory between himself and those claiming to be shepherds. I want you to look in your Bible at John 10. I'm going to read the first five verses. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings them out, and when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. And then John records for us in verse 6, Jesus used this illustration, but they didn't understand it. And that's not surprising, is it? Because they often misunderstood. And so verse 7 says, Jesus said to them again. He's going to say it in a way that is unmistakably understandable. If they can't understand this, they can't understand anything. And so what we have following is one of the most beautiful ideas in all of God's word about the Lord is wanting to be our shepherd. I'd like for you to see how this is developed here in John 10. And 
in order to simplify this, because I'm simple, we're going to limit it to just three ways of looking at it. But when you put these three ways together, I think they form a very powerful argument in the Lord's behalf that he is truly the good shepherd. Here's how we start, with his affirmations. The word affirm comes from uh, the Latin word meaning to make firm. <laughs> affirm, make firm. And so the dictionary would say to state positively, to assert as valid. You and I know that who affirms something makes a difference. Decades ago, Adolf Hitler affirmed that the Aryan race was superior. Didn't make any difference how he affirmed it. It was not true, but he affirmed it. I've told this story before, but you forgot. I went to high school with a boy named Bobby Rowe. Unfortunately, he died in Vietnam. But Bobby Rowe was a liar, a first-class liar. In fact, Bobby Rowe lied so much that when he would make some kind of statement and somebody would look at him, he would say, I swear that's true. It wasn't. Even with him swearing it was true. He affirmed it, but his affirmations were not worth much. We're glad that the Lord is the one who affirms these things because he can be trusted. John 1.17 says, But grace and truth came through Jesus. And Peter would later affirm in 1 Peter 2.22 of Jesus, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. None of us can say that. None of us can say that we've never told a lie, we've never misrepresented anything. At least I don't think you can. If you said you could, I'd say you might be, what, lying. But Jesus could be counted on. And I want you to notice these affirmations and how significant I think each of them is. Look at verse 7. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. You know, he's going to repeat this in verse 9, not the same words exactly, but he says, I am the door. And this is one of those places that we really wish that we were not just reading, but that we were actually hearing. Because I'd like to know how the Lord said it. Most assuredly, He might have said, I am the door of the sheep. Or He might have said later, I am the door. But, it, but whatever way He said it, we know that a door provides entrance, and that is the Lord's emphasis here. Later in John 14, verse 6, very familiar to all of us. No one, Jesus said, comes to the Father except through me. And the reason I emphasize the word through is it's that little Greek word di, sometimes dia, but di, through. But it's also by or because of. And so Jesus is saying, no one gets to the Father but by me, through me, by me. 
that's the only way you get to the Father. Incidentally, if that's true, then you can't get to him through Muhammad, can't get to him through Buddha, can't get through him through Scientology. Doesn't make any difference what else it is. If it's not Jesus, you don't get to the Father. In verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The emphasis here is on sacrifice. Because he goes on to say, the good sheep gives his life for the sheep. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I'll come back to that a little bit later. But Titus 2 and verse 14 assure us of Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. Galatians 1 verse 4, Paul would add, who gave himself for our sin. Jesus sacrificed himself. But again in verse 14 he says, I am the good shepherd. And this time the emphasis is going to be on relationship because he says, I know my sheep and am known by my own. <laughs> Have you ever been asked by somebody uh, about another person, do you know so-and-so? And, and maybe you've answered, I know who that is or I have met him, or I know people who know him. But, but, but unless you're really familiar with that person in a personal way, you don't normally say, I know him. Jesus says, I know my sheep, and they know me. What a wonderful relationship for the Lord to know us, but also for us to know him. And Jesus is not talking about knowing about him, but knowing him. John also not only records affirmations, he records some declarations. This is a combination of two Latin words to make visible or clear, to announce, to state emphatically and explicitly. A hallowed document in our country is what? The Declaration of Independence. It is a statement, a strong statement, that we choose to be an independent nation. There are three significant declarations here I want you to note. In these you will see both clarification and contrast. We go back to verse 4 when Jesus said, and he brings out his own sheep he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. The good shepherd knows his own sheep, and they know his voice. You can do some reading, if you'd like, about uh, ancient sheep herding and how shepherds took care of their sheep. They, they did not drive them. Incidentally, I've been... Uh, in places in India that I've seen sheep being fed and driven. I guess the Indians wanted to make sure they got there. But, but in ancient times, perhaps a fold would actually encompass more than one flock of sheep. And at night, the shepherds would bring their sheep into the fold. And then in the morning, when they took them back out to lead them to pasture, 
they would call them. And because of the relationship that they had developed with their sheep, the sheep knew their voice. And when they called them, they came. Because the sheep knew them just as the shepherd knew them. And so Jesus says, I know my sheep. But if you look at verse 5, it is not so with others. He says, yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. There's a rather interesting account of someone who visited a Bible land country where the practice was still going tried to disprove this by calling the sheep. They wouldn't come to him because they didn't know him. And, and, and Jesus said, those who are not true shepherds, my sheep won't follow them. In verse 9, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Sheep find pasture. And, and that's what they need to be sustained, to keep on living. A shepherd who would not lead his sheep to a place where they could be fed wouldn't really be a good shepherd. And that's why in the latter part of verse 10, you also have that very familiar statement, which is, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I wonder how many people in our world today are settling for life, but not abundant life. Maybe they think their life is abundant because they have an abundance of things. Not so. Many wealthy people are unhappy, believe it or not. Many poor people can be happy if they have an abundant life. And that's what Jesus wants for His sheep. Verse 11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Shepherd, who was really a good shepherd, considered his responsibility to the sheep to be so important that he would risk his life for them. But not so with a hireling. Look at verses 12 and 13. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. A lot of difference between the good shepherd and one who's not a good shepherd. And then finally, John gives us the Lord's confirmations. The word confirm is much like affirm with firm, with firmness. And so a dictionary would say assurance of the validity of something intended to remove doubt, provide proof. How could Jesus make affirmations and declarations and confirm them? Well, obviously he would be talking about what's going to happen. And the test would be, did it happen? Look at verse 15. The second part of verse 15 says, I lay down my life for the sheep. As you know, he did. And, and because of what he was willing to do, we stand in awe 
of his willingness to lay down his life for sheep. He's not laying down his life for himself. He's laying down his life for sheep. And then you come to verse 16. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring and they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. One flock and one shepherd. Reminds us of something we read in Ephesians, all those ones. What Jesus is forecasting is that his flock will not be a divided flock, but a united flock. Just one flock following just one shepherd. And obviously the preview of that is bringing Jews and Gentiles together. And and that was a feat that no one could have imagined possible. There was such a divide. There was such animosity between these two groups of people who equally hated each other, wanted nothing really to do with each other, and Jesus brought them together. I think one of the great thrills of the New Testament is God gathering into his fold people from all nations. I wish we were seeing that more often today, but we're not. Now, in your Bible, if you'll turn for just a moment, I know I've been giving you scriptures, but turn to Ephesians 2 for just a moment. I want you to consider with me one of the most beautiful passages in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, beginning verse 14. Of Jesus, Paul writes, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. The message that needs to ring out across the world tonight is this, Jesus can overcome any separation obstacle there is. It doesn't make any difference what color your skin is. It doesn't make any difference what your wealth is. It doesn't make any difference what your education is. Jesus can bring you into a body where all are one. That's the message needs to go out to the world. Now, I'm going to say this, I hope you don't misunderstand me, but, but I feel like I've got to say it, because I don't think it's being said very much. Denominationalism is not just a bad thing, it's an anti-God thing. If denominationalism is correct, then we have no right to oppose it. If it is wrong, we have every obligation to oppose it. 
And we're hearing more and more people in our world who are saying, it doesn't really make any difference where you go to church. It doesn't make any difference what your religion is as long as you just believe in God. That's not in the New Testament. It only comes from man's thinking. I don't think we ought to be mean, but I think we ought to be vocal in saying denominationalism is not God's plan. One church is His plan. That's what the New Testament teaches. I have something else I need to tell you. There's no personal animosity in this. But shame on those who call themselves pastors of these churches. What they're telling their people is, I'm your pastor and you should follow me. Is that what Jesus wants? While I was doing this lesson, I thought about a situation that happened a number of years ago. We were living in Sarah, Oklahoma. A young couple came, wanted to know if I would perform their wedding ceremony. girl was a member of the church. The boy wasn't a Christian member of a denomination. Normally, I didn't like to do weddings for people like that, and yet I knew the girl how devoted she was to God. The young man, I knew well enough to think he, he can be taught. So as a condition of marrying them, I said, I will perform your wedding ceremony if you study the Bible with me. I studied with that young man five times. At the end of the fifth time, I had shown him exactly what he needed to do and what he had not done. He had been sprinkled as an infant, not baptized, in water for the remission of his sin. And he said, I need to go back to Oklahoma City and talk to my pastor. You know what happened. He went back and his pastor said, oh, that, don't worry about that. You don't have to be worried. Came back and said, my pastor says I'm okay. Now, let me tell you, there's a good ending to this story. I, I, it was too late. He told me this two days before the ceremony. I didn't want to embarrass them. I performed the ceremony. A little bit later, Janice and I moved to Midwest City, Oklahoma. About a month later, they moved, and he contacted me and said, can we come to your Wednesday night service? Sure. Will you study again with me after the service? I did, and I baptized him because he stopped listening to a pastor who was not a shepherd but obeyed God's word. He didn't do it because I wanted him to do it. He did it because God's word said to do it, and Jesus is supposed to be the shepherd. Incidentally, that young man became a deacon in the Edmund Church, and as far as I know, has been faithful for almost 50 years in the Lord's church. But shame on those who say, I'm your pastor, all you have to do is follow me. I, you don't follow Andy, you don't follow Troy, you don't follow our shepherds because they're just shepherds. You follow Jesus Christ. That's your obligation. He's your shepherd. I am the shepherd. Now one more thing I noticed and then we're going to be 
close to out of time, I hope. 27 and 28. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Sometimes we sing that sweet song, Footsteps of Jesus, that make the pathway glow. You know, we need to follow our Lord. And those who follow their shepherd do so by hearing his voice, obeying him. Jesus never left the impression that simply listening to him was enough. People needed to obey what they heard. And he offers that wonderful blessing. He says that he will give eternal life to those who follow him. No one, he says. He says, they shall never perish, verse 28. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Now, you can, you can leave the Lord's hand if you choose. But no one can snatch you out of his hand. In 1 John 5 and verses 11 through 13, John wrote this. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. I don't think we think about that very much, and if, if I'm mistaken about this, you help me. But you notice that John doesn't say that you may know that you will have eternal life. He says, you may know that you have eternal life. When you became a Christian, there is a sense in which your eternal life began right then. The only thing that's going to change is there's going to be a transfer from this old life to, any, to a life where you won't die. But your eternal life started when you obeyed the gospel. And we rejoice in that because we have hope beyond the grave. That's why Christians can go through a funeral and, and not be just downcast because we know that there is eternal life ahead for us. The good shepherd. He needs to be your shepherd. And I hope he is. Let's pray together one more time. Again, Father, we thank you for the privilege we have of opening your word. We do so much want to know your will. And we want to know our shepherd. We want to know his voice and to follow him because we understand that he can lead us to pastures where our lives will be completely taken care of. Thank you for the abundant life that comes through Jesus. And Father, we thank you that we can be sheep of his fold. Help us, Father, to try to convince others 
with all of our energies that they should follow the Good Shepherd and Him only. Thank you again for the love that was manifested by one who was willing to lay down his life for the sheep. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.